By now, you've probably heard of Kondomarie, the Japanese author and organizing consultant known for her so-called Konmari method of tidying up. We are so in love with her. Marie Kondo and her Netflix eight-part series, Tidying Up. Her 2011 bestseller, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, sparked joy for millions around the world and propelled Konmari, as she's known in Japan, to international stardom. Joining us now is the grandmaster herself, Marie Kondo. You know who Marie Kondo is, everybody? Okay. So, she has a great show. It's on Netflix called Tidying Up. You guys know the name Marie Kondo? She's, uh... Yeah, all right. How many of you have been cleaning out your closets? Please welcome Marie Kondo. More recently, Kondo has been in the news again, as her Netflix show Tidying Up with Marie Kondo brought the Konmari method to a new audience of Americans fervently hoping to declutter their home through Konmari's magic. They have so much stuff. It's a never-ending battle to clutter. With the baby coming, we gotta get our stuff in order. We had a downsize from a four-story house to a two-bedroom apartment. In response to the popularity of the show, there's been a chorus of detractors and defenders of the Konmari method. As someone aware of Kondo Marie, but not having read her book or watched her TV show, I was surprised by the almost religious following she receives. I wasn't the only one. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. Dr. Jolian Thomas is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and studies religiosity in everyday life in contemporary Japan. Dr. Thomas was also cautious about the reaction to the popularity of tidying up and wrote about easy associations between the Konmari method and Shinto animism, first in a long Twitter thread, and then a post for the Los Angeles Review of books called Domesticity and Spirituality, Kondo is Not an Animist. I asked Dr. Thomas to weigh in, starting by introducing the Konmari method for the uninitiated. As I see it, she sort of sits at the confluence of two streams of popular writing on kind of lifestyle improvement in Japan. One of those is a sort of early 21st century stream called Danshari, which is basically a method of decluttering that involves refusing to buy things you don't need and getting rid of unnecessary superfluous crap and, and, and then also tidying up what's left. So that's kind of this longer tradition, still very squarely centered in the 21st century. A slightly longer tradition is basically just lifestyle advice, generally speaking, that may have some connection with religious traditions, but not necessarily so. And in that case, it sits within this body of self-help literature or self-help practices that promise personal transformation. Usually, it's the promissory nature of this that characterizes it. So the thing is like, if only you do this one thing, then your life will be utterly transformed. And we can see this in various kinds of practices, like some religious movements, but also things like yoga or healing practices like Reiki and so forth. So I think that's the general kind of cultural background, very much centered in the early 21st century. But Kondo Marie's tidying method, which she calls the Konmari method, is really simple. You have clutter in your house and it's bothering you. So rather than do things step by step or a little bit at a time, she suggests that you tidy all at once in one go. And if you do this, then you won't ever backslide. And she claims that this will totally change your life. So she's very systematic about it. 
She suggests that people start with clothes, then move to books, then papers, then miscellaneous items like you might find in your kitchen or your garage, and finally save sentimental items like photographs or diaries for last. She suggests that what you do is you take everything out, look at it all at once, and then touch each item physically and figure out whether it gives you a sort of thrill when you hold it. The word in Japanese is tokimeku, which is a really hard word to translate. So, you know, I, I kind of think like whoever figured out the phrase spark joy as a translation deserves an award because this has become like quickly the watchword of 2019 since her show aired on the first of the year. This fact that she focuses on the tactile and the intuitive is, I think, what makes her method really appealing. And what she's doing is basically allowing people to do what feels right, but she's also giving them a program for getting in touch with what feels right. So I think that this aspect of the show and her method both appeals to and, and irritates some audiences. And that's why her show has been both wildly popular and very divisive at the same time. And so her method has become something of a cultural phenomenon. Wired has an article, Toki Mickey Unfollow, How to Declutter Your Twitter Account. Other cultural influencers like Martha Stewart talking about ways to declutter your home once and never need to do it again. And of course, Kon Madi has her own Netflix series. I understand you binge watch the entire show. So can you describe a typical episode for those of us who haven't had the opportunity to see one? Yeah, so this is not the type of television I normally watch, I have to say. And, and in fact, I had no intention of watching the show until I started seeing a couple of different types of reactions to it on social media. So the show follows a very predictable pattern. There's a couple or a family that has a house that's full of stuff, and they're frazzled and frustrated with their clutter and their mess. And then Marie Kondo, who they know as Marie, comes to their house along with her translator, Ida-san. And she first talks with them about what their frustrations are, and she sort of asks them what their vision is for their home. And then after introducing herself to their house in a moment that's very sort of ritualized with soft piano music playing, she has them pull out all of their clothing, go through each item one by one, figure out whether it sparks joy. And then from there, each episode sort of goes through her five-step process more or less in stages. Some of them eliminate or omit some of the stages, and some of them kind of change the order a little bit. But, you know, you see all these people tossing out bags and bags of trash or taking them to goodwill. And then, you know, near the end of the episode, they're totally moved and expressing how things have changed or their family members show up and say, wow, I didn't realize your house could be like this. You know, that can be parents or children. Um, people say that their relationships are better and so forth. And I think that one of the things that we can see in the show is this real emphasis on transformation. You know, the, the focus is on that life-changing magic that's in the title of her book. So in episode one, there's this middle-class white couple with two young children. And near the beginning of the episode, the woman says, I want it to be strong enough to change me. And I, I think that that's a really powerful moment because she's she's recognizing that she's not as organized as she wants to be, but she's still interested in being transformed by the sagely person who's going to come into her home. I think that that's emblematic of the perception that Kondo Marie is this 
sort of magical sagely figure who's going to come into a home and provide the wisdom to this person who who will then uh, lead a totally different life from that point forward. And I think that really touches on this American desire for a quick fix. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's something maybe we can circle back to. Now, I had heard of Marie Kondo and her Kondmati method. There's even this big New York Times profile of her. (laughs) But I wasn't really that familiar with her, her philosophy, or her TV show. Sure. But the reason I wanted to talk with you is that I saw on Twitter that you had this long thread unpacking and complicating some of the reactions to Kondmati's popularity. Uh, can you tell us about what inspired you to write on Konmari, and particularly about some of the responses to her outside of Japan, along with some of the cultural assumptions mm. that are made about her methods? Yeah, like you, I, I was sort of watching with amusement as I saw American audiences coming to know of Konmari. But then on social media, which for me is mostly Twitter, I saw two sorts of trends happening almost simultaneously. One was a misunderstanding of Kondo Marie on the part of a number of people who were taking issue with her alleged claim that people should have no more than 30 books. For my fellow scholars, I I want to say that she actually says very explicitly in her book that scholars are a special case (laughs) and that we may find it necessary to have many books and that she personally um, tries to have no more than 30. I didn't know this at the time because I hadn't read her book, but I saw that, you know, there are all these people who were like really hating on this claim or this alleged claim of hers and saying, you know, books bring us joy, books are good, and, and, and so forth. I'm very sympathetic to that. I have too many books myself. But the thing that really got to me and the thing that sort of prompted me to write at length on Twitter was a kind of response to the haters. So the defenders of Konmari we're saying, hey, haters, you don't understand what's going on. Your claims are racist. And one of the things that came up within that defense of Konmari was a claim that was repeated over and over again, which is that her method was based on Shinto, or as some people put it, on Shinto animism. As I started seeing that, I thought, this is really, really problematic for a number of reasons. First of all, you know, I'm a a scholar of Shinto. I've spent a lot of time thinking about Shinto. And I noticed that a lot of people had a very superficial understanding of the amalgamation of traditions that collectively go under the name of Shinto. And another thing is that there's a politics to the word animism that people seem to be sort of unaware of. And I'd just written a book chapter on the sort of politics of of animism. And so I was also had that in the back of my mind. All right. So let me just sort of unpack a little bit about this, because there are there are a lot of different layers here. So the first layer is the racism claim. One of the things that came up is that, of course, some of the haters were making some statements that seemed to be unnecessarily dismissive of this diminutive Asian woman who speaks either in very broken English or in Japanese with a translator. And there's problematic optics of uh, somebody who is, say, like a white journalist talking very dismissively of of, of an Asian woman. Even at the beginning of the month of January, there are already several pieces. There's one in The Guardian, and they're all over the place. I was keeping this list of, of the articles and, and I got exhausted because they were just like all of the 
you know, hot takes were coming too quickly to keep track of. At any rate, the defenders curiously used an essentialist claim to counter what they perceived to be a racist statement. Let me just clarify that by racist, I, I mean anything that attributes a, an, a psychological attitude or a personal disposition to an entire population based on perceived physical or biological similarities, right? So if you group everybody together and you say all Japanese people are like this, Kondo Marie is representative of all Japanese people. And so when you critique her, you're critiquing all Japanese people. That in itself is a racist statement. So the people who are trying to defend Kondo Marie are actually making racist claims in the name of anti-racism. And that I think is, is just like mind boggling if very widespread on the social media, especially the social media of the left. Another thing that came up as I started observing this is that what we might think of as the real racists or the obvious racists, I'm thinking like people who are outspoken white supremacists picked up on this debate and latched onto it and started to praise Kondo Marie on sites like the Daily Stormer, saying that she was going to teach white women how to be organized and docile and so forth. And that fits into this longstanding tradition of understanding Asian femininity as docile and demure and all that. And the white supremacist websites started to use this language of white Shinto. So that is, I think, really disturbing. And, and I'm not sure that all of the defenders are aware that their defenses are then being used in a sort of tongue-in-cheek fashion by the white supremacists, nor do they seem to be aware of the fact that racial hierarchies work really differently in Kondo Marie's native land of Japan, where the presupposition is not that the most elite race, if you want to use that sort of understanding, is white, but actually there is a widespread, pervasive understanding of Japanese supremacy. This comes up in Kondo Marie's own book. At one point, she says that it's in Japanese people's genes to tidy. And she says that Japanese people, more than any other people on earth, are inclined to be tidy which on its face is a ridiculous claim, because if that were true, then she would not have a job. So there's an essentialist claim, which breeds an essentialist response, which breeds another essentialist response, which breeds yet another essentialist response. And basically, all of that is racism. And I, and I think that the well-intentioned liberals who are reacting to one particular knee-jerk reaction to her show are unintentionally reproducing these very problematic understandings about Japanese-ness. Now, as you were saying, if this was really something integral to Japanese-ness, then Marie Kondo wouldn't have a job. So <laughs> as you mentioned, there is this conflation of Marie Kondo, Japanese-ness, and Shinto. I see even one article here that says seven ways to declutter a goddess with the Konmari method. But this idea seems rooted in this too easy association between Japanese-ness and Shinto, as the animistic native religion of the Japanese islands. And certainly this is the popular understanding of Shinto. But is it not quite that simple after all? It is not quite that simple in a word. Um, so let's see here. You know, I think that even if you were to go to a dictionary or to Wikipedia or something like that, you're, probably the first thing that you would find is Shinto is the indigenous animistic religion of Japan. The problem is that that's an outdated understanding of Shinto, and the most recent research on Shinto basically have called this premise into question. 
Well, why is that? We do have evidence that from even prehistory, there is something called kami veneration in Japan. It seems that for as long as there has been anything that we might call Japan, people have been venerating these entities called kami. What they are, how people understand them has changed a lot over time, as is true of, of any longstanding cultural tradition. But the notion of Shinto really doesn't come into clarity until the 15th century at the earliest. And it does so in opposition to a tradition that's understood to be foreign, which is Buddhism. Let's just let that sink in for a second. The notion of Shinto emerges at the earliest at the 15th century in relationship to a tradition that's perceived to be foreign. So already from its inception, Shinto is understood in relationship to perceptions of foreignness. Moving forward in time to around the 17th century or so, we have people who are theorists now of what Shinto is and what are they doing to establish what Shinto is. Well, they're looking at how other cultures establish their cosmology and how other what we would now call religions establish their cosmology. So they're looking at Copernican cosmology and then they're saying, well, that obviously doesn't work. Let's rework it so that it's more Japan centric. And then if we get to a little bit later, like the mid 19th century, it's in interaction with countries like the United States that Japanese people decide to reconfigure Shinto yet again in their foreign relations. And then again, during the Allied occupation of Japan. And more recently, Shinto has been reconfigured again in terms of the global environmentalist movement. So my point is that even if we have kami worship that has been going on in Japan since you know the earliest recorded times, the notion of Shinto has always been constructed in relation to foreign others. This is also true of the concept of animism. Now, animism seems timeless, or it seems like if, if we had some word that would describe like early human sort of ritual and, and religious practices or worldviews, animism is that word. And I think that that's the sort of garden variety understanding. But animism emerged in the 19th century as anthropologists were trying to figure out a way to categorize and basically hierarchically organize the various religions of the world. And they placed that through the influence of people like Charles Darwin on an evolutionary scale where animism was always seen to be kind of a false understanding of how the world really worked. The assumption was that eventually animus would always become monotheists and that animism was this sort of vestigial remnant of an earlier age, and that anybody who still happened to be an animist was just a monotheist waiting to emerge. And so this is an idea that I just saw earlier today, somebody on Twitter making this exact same claim. So this is a really pervasive, pejorative understanding of animism. Next to that pejorative understanding today, I think the defenders are using what I call a recuperative understanding of animism, where they think animism is this intuitive understanding of a personal relationship with objects or with the natural environment. And when they do so, they're trying to suggest that animism, unlike monotheism, might help people connect with inanimate objects in, in, in a better way. A lot of times people will say that animists, or when they're talking about Japan, Japanese people all believe that spirits reside in everything. I think that's a bit of a specious claim. 
you know, my own experience with Japanese people suggests that sometimes they may treat certain objects with veneration, and sometimes they will treat objects just as anybody else would treat objects with utter disdain or disregard. So I think that these sorts of essentializing claims about, you know, Japanese-ness and animism deserve to be called into question because of the politics of that word. And there's one other facet of animism particularly that I, that I want to problematize, and that's that it can function in an obscurantist way. And, and by that, I mean it can serve to mask one's motivations or to render one's motivations or one's attitudes as something that's beyond critique. So if somebody says, well, I do this because I'm an animist, then it's really hard to know what that means. It's really hard to peek behind the curtain and figure out what somebody is saying. And I think that a lot of Konmari's defenders have been using animism in a combination of this recuperative mode and also in this obscurantist mode where they just say, okay, animism done. And they kind of like dust their hands off and feel like it's been explained away. But I think that we need to look at the word animism itself and figure out what political work it's doing for those people. And for my part, I think that it's actually letting people off the hook from doing some serious thinking about what kinds of assumptions they're making about race and religion. I'm Tristan Grunow, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars and academics bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Japan on the Record is hosted and produced by Tristan Grunel at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, BC. Thank you for listening.